Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown with me, your host, Rhea Wong. Today, my guest is my new friend, Phil Weinberg. I'm so excited to have Phil on the call. So Phil is a longtime educator, former deputy chancellor of the New York City Department of Education and former chief academic officer. Right now, he is taking a little bit of time off and seeing what is coming next for him and thinking about all of the ways in which we are supporting kids writing and in the New York City School District. So welcome, Phil. Thank you, Rhea. It's really great to be here. I gave a little bit of an intro, but tell us a little bit about your career and what has brought you up to this point. Well, my career really is one that's not traditional these days. I worked for one employer for 35 plus years. After college, I worked for one year at, in 1984, was a budding field of technology for a technology magazine called Sextant, which was about Heath Zenith computer kits. I knew nothing about it. I was doing subscriptions. I was really Bartleby the Scrivener in the back room. And then shortly thereafter, I became a teacher and I've worked for the New York City Department of Education from 1984 until 2019, a little bit more than a year ago. And I was a teacher, a principal, and then I worked at the central office as what was the deputy chancellor for teaching and learning was the title. Other school systems, it would have been called the chief academic officer. And I had a wonderful, amazing time at the Department of Ed, feeling like I was working with people who were doing good and right things for students. The one downside is, aside from a two-year stint at Burger King, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to work anywhere else since I spent most of my time at the DOE. Okay, can we talk about the DOE? Because it is the largest school system in the country. It is a beast. And you not just survive, but thrive there for a long, long time. So tell us a little bit about what are some of the survival skills of being able to thrive in the DOE? Because I've had folks I know kind of come in and get chewed up and spit out. I think that the DOE is in many ways two separate things. There's this large system in and of itself. And then every day, 16 or 1800 school buildings open their doors to a million young people and each one of those schools is its own place and for most of my career i spent my time at the high school of telecommunication arts and technology and oftentimes standing on the corner before the school day opened and felt like i was part of something as i watched 1300 kids get off the subway and happily or unhappily march their way into school I was with a community of people building something. And then when I did spend the last five and a half years at Central, I was blown away by what I had come to think of as the faceless bureaucracy that was really populated, at least in the division that I worked in, with great people who really cared deeply about young folks, but who were also tasked with keeping this immense system moving in many ways were unimaginable to me until I started that portion of my career. And I think keeping one's head above water in both places usually just involved trying to make sure that kept in mind, first and foremost, what we were trying to do, and then working with like-minded people to do that. There was a great deal of pleasure at both places because as we defined what we wanted to do and why and found fellow travelers who were willing to do it, the work carried us forward in many, many ways. I think the difficulty, especially at Central, is the intertwining of politics and practice. 
And I'm not sure that I was as good at that as I should have been in order to be as helpful as I could have been. But it was an education in and of itself for me. And it is a way in which I think people do get chewed up by the system. So we're going to talk about organizational complexity because I mean, I can't imagine any more complex environment than the New York City Department of Education. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the current situation that schools are facing in the COVID era. Before we were taping, you and I were talking a little bit about some of the mental health challenges that young people may be facing as a result of the pandemic. So I'm just curious if you could speak in broad strokes about what you think the big challenges are facing the DOE and facing principals as we navigate this pandemic challenge. How are we supposed to educate a million children with any kind of quality and standard? Yeah. It's a great question. It's a hard question. The two things that stand out to me are right now, especially the beginning of the school year, the shifting sands and the shifting priorities that have been presented to school leaders and to teachers and the changing rules have been very, very difficult. And I think that as things settle in to a kind of, if not routine, at least a a shared vision of what it is we're doing and why we're doing it, the work I don't think it will get easier, but it won't keep getting harder, which I think is what has happened for many of the adults in the school system. Many parents remain confused by what's happening, and I think that has to be true for students as well. But one of the immediate dangers, I think, in the last couple of months, my worry has been that we're going to lose good, committed people in the school system because there hasn't been clarity around what their roles are and what they should be doing. The pandemic is hard for everybody, but there's been a kind of desperation in the voices of many educators that concerns me deeply because the folks I'm hearing it from are the people we need to be there tomorrow and next year and whenever the pandemic lifts so that we can receive our students again and offer them the best education we possibly can. And I think that's an immediate need. I think the second thing that I worry about and I wish was happening with greater depth has been I think we need a deeper focus on what does it look like to educate in a non-traditional way, to educate young people, not to ever say that we know this is going to replace our classrooms, but to say, here's where we are today. We know that from March until June, we were teaching virtually. What did we learn? What worked? What didn't work? What should we change? Why should we change it? And how can we take this information that we gathered for those first three months and make sure that this school year is at minimum better than last school year. It's that investment in our own learning and commitment to our own learning as educators that I think has been missing here. It's been a pandemic. People are scrambling to get things right, but I think there's a missed opportunity to do better by our young people by not stepping back and saying, what did we notice last time? What should we do this time? So I think that's a really great segue into talking about leadership. As somebody who kind of came up through the system and started as a teacher, became a principal, then started working at Central, it's sort of a classic arc. And I imagine that the skills and mindset that you needed to have to be a successful teacher was really different than that Central. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as you've sort of progressed up into this very complex organism that we call the New York City Department of Education? I think the complexity part of it, especially at Central, had to do with 
some of the simple things. It took me a little longer than I wish that I learned in the classroom and especially things that I learned as a principal. But the key part of being an effective leader has been being able to help define a shared purpose and to rally people to that purpose. And even at Central, where in theory, we were leading 1,600 schools and over 100,000 employees and over a million students. I still think our obligation was to say, this is what we stand for, this is what we're moving toward, and let's all try to get there together. And that, I don't think that's different from what a classroom teacher does, and certainly it wasn't different than, than what I saw successful school principals do. I think within there, and this part became more complicated at Central, remembering that the work isn't about an individual, that it's about a collective is especially important. But as you get a more and more political job, individual success sometimes becomes a detriment to the collective success. And so as a school system in New York that has over a $30 billion budget and takes a third of the biggest city in the country's overall budget, becomes a gigantic political entity and has a lot of people attached to it who also have individual goals that might not necessarily be the best goals for a million young people. And that takes you to how you en enact your leadership. In many ways, what I think has to happen for a leader to be taken seriously is that once the collective good is defined or the collective goals are defined, resources have to go to that. And it's easy to say resources have to go to that. But in a school system where there's usually a zero-sum budget, that means if resources move to something, they move away from something. And the hard job oftentimes of a leader is to be able to explain why and to be able to make sure that the things that are valued, the things that will be best for young people, get the resources they need to happen. With everything, in the end, you have to do all that by being kind to people. Or otherwise, why would anyone want to be in a room with you, much less work with you on something? Yeah, that resonates so much because I think ultimately at the end of the day, all we have are the relationships with each other, right? Yes. And so I'm wondering, in an environment like the Department of Education, which is so politicized, how do you ensure that this clarity of purpose remains pure when you have all of these competing interests and agendas and politics surrounding it? I think it's hard. Part of what I wish I had been able to do better was exercise some political strategies to make sure that the shared purpose that our team believed in was something that was adopted even more widely. And in the end, it has to be adopted in New York City by the mayor's office, so it won't really happen. I'm not sure that I did as good a job of that as I could or should have. But I think part of what you do and what I tried to do as often as I could was make sure you explain with the greatest amount of clarity why this matters and what you've learned that tells you that it matters, and invite others to talk to you about why they agree or disagree, but try to make it a clear and balanced conversation as best as possible so that you can draft other people to ideas without having to win the day by trumping them politically. And it's hard to use that word these days, but- um, Pun intended. <laughs> Yeah. Let's talk about this because one of the great privileges of running this podcast is I get to talk to extraordinary people. And recently we had Elizabeth Green on the podcast who runs TalkBeat, which mm -hmm. some folks on the call may be familiar with. And what strikes me about really effective leaders is there just seems to be, I don't want to say lack of ego because I think we all have ego, but a very sort of low ego 
approach to leadership. And I think paradoxically, what I've noticed is good leadership seems to be like a magical combination of humility and confidence. And so I'm just wondering, how do you strike that balance of being humble and wanting to share the vision with others around you, but also being confident enough to understand that this is the vision and to get people on board? It's a great construct, I think, with the humility and confidence or confidence. I think that it's a very kind way to put it, that there's a lack of ego that creates the humility for strong leaders. I think that's partly true. I think there's also the sense that your individual ego is tied up in the collective good as well. And that one of the things I think a strong leader does is their own ego is fed by the movement of the group, of the community, rather than just of the individual. And so there were few greater pleasures as a principal than walking through a building and seeing great classrooms, people teaching really, really well, people teaching better than I ever taught. And knowing that I had the ability to work with such folks and could, at least on good days, attempt to help them get even better. And I think that's important. And I think the humility part also comes from promoting the idea that we're all learners, that in fact, getting better every day is what the work is. And if we're all learners and we're trying to get better every day, that the corollary to that is we all don't know bunches of stuff and we're all not good enough at some things or we could be better at things. And it's nice to say that you're a learner and you're looking to improve. It's hard to say that I don't know enough to do this job and I'm not good at it yet. They basically mean the same thing. And so you have to be humble enough to know that there's a path forward for you and for everyone you're working with about getting better. And that's hugely important. And then the competence and competence part. Sometimes when you're the person who has the final decision making, I've had many, many a time where I thought like, who the hell am I? And why am I the person who's making this decision? I'm no different than anyone I work with. But there is a kind of both resignation and, and resignation, not in a bad way, but resignation in that it has to come to somebody and a realization that there's a great deal of trust that's been invested in someone who can then turn around and say, yes, if you disagree with this decision, I'm the person you have to talk to. And so one of the things that I wanted to do in both leadership roles, both centrally as a school leader, was to make sure that if there was disagreement with what we were doing, that I was the person that someone should talk to. And that worked, I think, that helped open communication, which was good, but it also was a great way for me to learn. People who didn't agree with decisions probably taught me a ton more than people who agreed with me all the time, and I'm grateful for that learning. So one thing that you and I spoke about a little while ago, and it just strikes me again. So I also came up through education. And obviously, I have a very strong bias towards educators. It seems to me that a lot of your leadership philosophy, if you will, has really come from a teacher perspective or an educator perspective, which is to say that we're all learners and we're all not good at everything and that we're mm -hmm. all on this learning journey together. Is that something that you say would resonate with you? Very much so. I mean, I think the way I probably started to learn that was as a younger teacher, I talked too much. And in 1982, I wrote a thesis on Toni Morrison. One of my greatest pleasures in the world was reading a book like Song of Solomon with young people. But the downfall for them was I was too excited about the book and I wanted them to know everything that I knew. And when I eventually learned to be quieter, 
it turned out that the collective minds in the room were a lot smarter about Toni Morrison than I was, even though I was the only one in the room who had written a long paper about her. And that lesson, that I could be a better teacher by listening more, mattered a great deal to me. And that was something I think have tried to carry with me for a long time. It's really interesting that you say that, Phil, because I think a lot about my own leadership journey. And when I was younger, I talked a lot more because I think it was, frankly, insecurity. And so I just thought if I talked a lot more and I made people believe that I knew exactly what was happening, no one would see that I was terrified and had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that you were terrified as well. Yeah, being the person who has to make those decisions or who has to have their name on the decisions. Mm -hmm. is, is really scary because making the wrong decision has consequences for lots and lots of people. Yeah. I always think about being like a duck, like on the surface, it looked totally fine. And under the water, I was paddling frantically, just trying to keep up. And so it's interesting to me because I think we kind of grow into our leadership in the way that we grow into our maturity. And I guess I'm wondering if you could say more about that, if that's been true for you and if you've seen other examples of that in your career. Yeah, it's very true for me. That also resonates. It also makes me think, my God, why am I not mature yet? But yes, I think that part of the humility that you spoke about before comes from the inability to step back from oneself and see oneself as part of a collective. And that, I think, is a maturing of a person. I think if one wants to be part of a large organization with a shared purpose, one has to recognize that one is not the organization. One is just lucky enough to have the voice for, and it's not yours forever. Yeah, I was a principal for 13 years, which is a long time in New York City public schools. But I would say with a great deal of certainty that Jeanetta, who's leading the school now, is doing a better job than I ever did. And I'm thrilled for that. And I'm thrilled for the school that they have such a strong leader. And being, getting to a place where you can step back and be able to more quickly recognize where you could grow and what you could do better allows you to serve your community to do your job in a better way. And at least for me, that has come with both age and maturity. The two are intertwined. So I'm going to ask one last question, and then I'm actually going to open it up to folks. I'm just wondering if you could recommend any practices that you have, because it seems to me that you're quite a calm person, <laughs> not always what I associate with folks who work for the DOE, and quite reflective. And I'm just wondering if you could share with folks any practices that you use in order to get to this place of learning. Sure. I think the best thing I ever figured out to do was to listen as much as I could. Every good idea that I ever had wasn't my idea. It's something that was part of a community and part of a conversation with folks. When I was a principal, it seemed like a trick to me, the way I describe it, but it was a strategy, I guess, which was being at school at my desk early so that folks could know I was there if they wanted a private conversation and making sure I was there late and frankly sort of wandering around to see who was still in the building late to see if anyone wanted a conversation. I also like to stock my office with chocolate. That brought people in somehow, especially if people were stressed. And it was good to be able to be an ear when people needed it. And the second thing I started to learn to do was to try to create the safe space for adults to learn. We know that students don't learn unless they feel safe. And it sort of shocked me that I didn't understand that adults are much like young people. They're people. And people don't learn if they don't feel the safety, A, to make a mistake, 
or B, to, to note that they're not good enough at something or they want to be better at something. And I think those were powerful, powerful tools as a leader. And the third thing was, this was hard for me and remains hard for me, but trying to create clarity that I'm interested in learning what I could do better and that I would celebrate and appreciate people talking to me about where they thought I could improve. That just amplified my efforts to grow and helped me become better for the community. Yeah, uh, reflect and it's resonating with me because I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was being so focused on the outcome that I didn't tend enough to the process. And so for me, and I hereby apologize to all of my staff members in the past, <laughs> which is I don't think that I created the safe space for learning and the safe space to make mistakes because for me it was just so outcome-driven and outcome-based that I see that it maybe people feel threatened. I can think of numerous things in my career where that happened, where I felt like I knew I was right and we should all know that this was the way to go. And then things that I value deeply, like shifting our school schedule around so that we could have time to work together, weren't continued, abandoned for a year and then brought back. Or right Central, the programs like the Learning Partners Program and the Showcase Schools Program, where schools were going to work with each other to learn together, seemed so self-evident to me that it was the right thing to do for a school system that needed to grow at scale. And yet, I think I didn't get enough buy-in outside of our own division to make sure that those programs were resourced as opposed to other things, algebra for all or something like that, which wouldn't have had as deep an effect on our schools. And I regret those mistakes. I do have another question for you. I'm curious in something that I, so back when I started Breakthrough, I had the privilege of interviewing my old program director on this podcast, who is now a principal. I'm so proud of her. And she and I talked about how early on, you know, we were in our 20s. We didn't know anything about anything, but I think we had enough of a sense of the kind of environment that we wanted to create for kids. And it was a kind of a restorative justice-based model, even though we didn't actually have the words to say restorative justice. And I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit about your perspectives on, I've always had a huge problem with the kind of this no excuses type charter management organization ethos when it comes to educating kids. And by contrast, I think it does tremendous harm to teachers and employees. And so we see a huge churn rate. And so I guess I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that. I have similar fear. I think the desire to control other people, which is where I think both no excuses and, and scripted curricula, scripted lesson plans come from, is a very limiting way to work with other folks. It is a desire to eliminate mistakes, keep people from doing the wrong thing. And I understand the human impulse toward that. And certainly as a leader, there were rules all the time and we didn't want people to break them. But one of the realizations that comes with the maturity we spoke about earlier is that people aren't perfect and do make mistakes. And the growth that comes from mistakes is probably the greatest growth that we see in other people, both academic and social. The fear that one person will hurt another person does drive and needs to drive many of our rules. But when it gets to the point where we are limiting students from painting outside the lines and not necessarily, I think we are in fact limiting students and their growth, their long-term growth. I think short-term, you can get results that way. 
but I don't think those kinds of communities develop the best teachers. And we'll know in some years whether they develop students who are best thinkers or best contributors to society. Yeah. As you're speaking, I was thinking about the Mr. Rogers documentary, which you haven't seen it, Phil, you must see it. I recommend it to everybody. It's a wonderful documentary. Of course, I watched it on a plane, so I was getting all teary in the middle of a plane. But a lot of what Mr. Rogers knew about children holds true, which is they need space to think and grow. And they need someone who will say, I like you just the way you are. Yes, yes, yes. Please watch this and I'd like to debrief with you because I think you would really enjoy it. As we sign off here, I'm just wondering, are there any last thoughts that you can share with us? Because I know we have people who might be listening to the podcast who are emerging leaders and may be struggling with developing their own sense of confidence and competence. And I'm wondering, what would you advise them? How would you suggest that they continue to grow in this practice? I think that there's this conflicting thing that happens within ourselves where the more responsibility we get, the more preparation we do, which is good. We need to be prepared. But the more preparation we do, the more rigid we become in our understanding of what we believe is right or wrong, good or bad, and what's the best way to manage things. And allowing yourself to be continuing to push yourself to be as prepared as you possibly can, learn whatever you can, have a real opinion about where you need to go and why, remaining both flexible and vulnerable so you can hear the voices of your colleagues, your friends, the people you go home to at the end of the day, keeps you in the position of a learner and provides you with even more power by drawing more people in who will contribute more ideas to you, who will help you become a better thinker and make better decisions down the road. I think it is the immediate feeling that when you are lucky enough to be put in the position of being a leader, that you have to make decisions. And you do. The decisions will end up being yours. There isn't this magic way of making a decision and naming something in a declarative way that shows you to be a leader. I think a leader is someone who can, over years, help a community grow and improve as opposed to command and control better performance, as it were. That is such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Take care. It's great. Thanks, Ria.